All right. Well, thanks for that, youngsters. That's one of the songs that's been sung for quite a long time. If you're a young person and you never heard that before, that's okay too. You, those are the kinds of songs that we learn at Vacation Bible School and in Sunday School, some of our sing times, some kind of more fun songs like this. But sometimes we focus, you know, we, we like a song because it's fun and we forget there's a, there's a message there too, right? And the message is your sermon in shoes. You're a walking, breathing testimony for Jesus Christ. And everybody, in a sense, has the opportunity to see his light in you if we're willing to shine that light instead of hiding it what? Hiding it under a basket, bushel basket, right. So if we hide our light, if our light is hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing, right? Those who don't know about Jesus because that's primarily how Jesus communicates the message of what he has done for people, how much he loves them is through our willingness to tell them about him. It's talking about a song that's been sung for a while as I was looking at, we were singing There is a Fountain here. Just so you know, the actual name of the song is Praise for the Fountain Opened. So it, it didn't catch on. It wasn't as catchy, so they changed it to it's commonly known by There is a Fountain based on its first line here. But this song was written in 1772. That's 250 years ago that this last song we sang as a hymn was written. And we're still here singing about the shed blood of Jesus Christ as he was willing to be our sacrifice, to die in our place, to die a death he didn't deserve for sins he had not committed because he loved us so much and he wanted us to be able to go free, for us to be redeemed, for us to be able to have life. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So Jesus was willing to become that sacrifice for you and I to take our place, to become that substitute for us so that we wouldn't have to pay the debt of our own sin, the debt that we all owed, that we all, stand, we all stood guilty of, so we wouldn't have to be separated from God forever and pay that debt, which would mean that we'd be forever in the lake of fire instead of heaven. So what a wonderful thing that somebody could want to write about God's truth 250 years ago, and here we could still be singing that song. Now, you think about that, and the truth is we don't know how long we have on earth. We don't know how long our lives are, but God wants us to use that time to be a testimony for him. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to start with our devotion for tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your great love. Thank you that you are a God who sees, and you're a God who provides. You see us in our need, and you weren't willing to leave us that way. You wanted to make a way for us to be reconciled to you, to be brought into a closeness with you, to be able to live life with you both now in this life and for all of eternity in a place that you've gone to prepare for us. As we think about even our song that says, a tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a mansion for me over there. This life we know is just the beginning. There's all of eternity to look forward to when this life is over. And the question isn't, will we live forever? Because we will. The question is, will we live forever in heaven with you in the place you prepared for us? Or are we going to have to spend all of eternity apart from you in the place that you ultimately don't want any man to go? That you prepared ultimately for Satan and the fallen angels. Pray that we would see the importance of sharing this message of how it's easy 
to be born into your family so that we know that we'll spend forever with you just by trusting and believing in what you've already done for us as you were willing to take our place and become our sacrifice to pay our debt for us by dying on our place on Calvary, being buried and then rising again victorious over death in the grave. Pray that we would see that by simply accepting, putting our trust in, being convinced that what you say about your provision for our need is true, that we could be born into your family and that you say you will never let us go, that nothing could separate us from your love and that we could have absolute assurance that one day when we die, we'll go to be with you. So we wouldn't fear death at all because that we would know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Pray even for Dave Samuelson as we've been praying for him, just knowing that he was in an accident yesterday and is is still in a coma here yet tonight. Pray that you'd undertake to provide him with encouragement and strength and and comfort. Pray that you'd give wisdom to his doctors that he could heal, that you'd undertake for even the injuries that he's had, that your will would be done, that you would encourage even his family and those that are closest to him, even in a hard time like this where it's unknown how things will shake out but one thing we do know and we find comfort in is that you're in control all of the time not just some of the time that you have already you already know how the story ends for Dave because he's put his faith in you so whether whether he recovers from this or he goes to be with you you know how this story ends and it's a happy ending it's being able to be with you for all of eternity thank you for signs that there's some positive outlook there Um, thank you even for some of the indications that maybe he is hearing and aware of some of the things that are going on around him just pray that you'd again undertake with all of those details for everyone involved and that we would be a church on its knees a church willing to pray about these things and believing that you can do anything that you're a limitless god and that if you if you want to move mountains you could that even faith the size of a mustard seed could do that. Pray that we would have that faith in your ability to answer prayers, knowing that the effective, effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Thank you for all of the others that we know are going through even hard times and physical trials and, and challenges in our midst, in our body. Pray that you'd just give them strength and encouragement, that you'd draw them closer to you, that they would grow in their faith as a result of the challenges that they're facing. Pray that we'd all want to grow closer to you, that we'd want to learn more about you, that we'd want to live our lives with you. Pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the title of tonight's devotion is The Lord Will Provide. The Lord Will Provide. Many of you know, of course, that when you think about that phrase, the Lord will provide, you know that it's actually based on a description of God where you take God's name and then you add some characteristic or description of him to it. And this particular example is referring to Jehovah Jireh, two words put together that form this idea that God provides or the Lord will provide. And as we're thinking about, we've been touching on for the last few family fellowship nights, we've been touching about this big picture concept even in the Bible of how man is in desperate need of God to undertake and provide for man what man could never provide for himself. And sort of the subtitle of this series is just only God can save. We can't save ourselves. We, man has a need and that need is dependent on God to undertake to make a way 
or a way of dealing with that problem that we have with sinfulness and being estranged from God, both by, by nature and by choice. As we think about having been born into a race of sinners, so we come by honestly in that sense, but also in the sense that we chose, we choose to sin. We choose to rebel against God because of the sin nature inside of us, the influence of the sin nature. And so because of that sin, of course, we find ourselves in a place where we are estranged from God in the sense that God loves us, God is interested in us, God wants to live life with us, but being now identified with Adam, being identified with sinfulness, and God being perfectly holy and righteous, he can't have a close relationship with us until something is done about that sin. And so you think of all the different ways that God provides. The one most important to us or the starting point for our faith is that God provides a way for us to be reconciled to him or to be redeemed. And that, of course, that provision by God is in the form of Jesus Christ, how he became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God through our faith in him and his finished work on our behalf. And so you think about all the things that God provides then for his children, how he undertakes to, as the good shepherd, the shepherd, of course, gives his life for the sheep. It starts with that. But then he says, I'll provide all that you need. So when you think about Jehovah Jireh or the Lord provides, it's that God has provided for every need, but the focus tonight I want to have is how he's provided for our greatest need, how he provided a substitute for us. And I want to show that the Old Testament has many different illustrations or pictures where these stories that we maybe have heard of, these stories are actually really a picture of this redemptive plan or this rescue that God would have for us in the future. Now, when you think about the Lord will provide, again, I said God is referred to in many different ways throughout the Old Testament, or maybe I didn't say that, but God has many different names. And they're all names that are different in the sense that each name describes a different quality about God. And one of those names, God's personal name, the name that he gave to himself versus somebody else saying, God is Jehovah, he's the Lord, he's Yahweh, and then adding a characteristic to it, that isn't necessarily God who self-named himself. It's somebody else saying, it's the God who is our shield or it's the God who is our strength. And they're just adding adjectives to the name of God and then that's being known as a name of God. But it's, it's not truly a name of God. It's a quality or characteristic of God that's being added to his name and then becomes known as a way of referring to God as the God who saves or the God who's the shield or the God who is powerful. And I'll give you a few more examples in a minute. But God, when he was asked by what name he wanted to go by, he said, I am that I am. The self-existent or ever-existing one, ever-existent one in God's personal name, we know that the Bible refers to as Yahweh, the eternal or self-existent one. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am. I've always been the eternal and ever-existent, self-existent one. I wasn't created and I've always been. I'm not constrained by time. I'm not constrained by matter. I'm not constrained by the things that human beings are constrained by. Now, when you think about that, that word or that name, the personal name of God, Yahweh, most translations replace Yahweh with Lord. And it's usually in King James or New King James. It's all capital letters. So when you, say, when you see the word in your Bible, Lord, the Lord said, and if it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, then you know it's referring to God's personal name, Yahweh. And as you think about that, the reason that they did that, it was in keeping with the tradition of the Israelites in not pronouncing or spelling out God's name. They thought as a way of showing honor to God or 
I guess honor is the best way of, of looking at it. They, they said God's name shouldn't even be said or pronounced. And so that, that keeping with that tradition then, we're not even going to write it. They, it. It isn't even written in our Bible. And of course, I don't you know, hold to that, that view that it's wrong to say the name that God gave for himself. His name is Yahweh. He said, that is my name. And as you think about that, though, that's why when you look at your Bible and you see that time and time again, that's why it is that way. And I didn't necessarily recognize that when I was young. So when you're looking at your Bible and you see that, Lord, L-O-R-D, and it's many times you'll find that, that's the idea. Now, sometimes God's personal name was pronounced, and, and this is in time, a, a while back as you go back through, through time, people, when they started saying his name, were trying to figure out, how do I say this? Because... In the Hebrew language, they don't have vowels in its written form. So in its spoken form, it has vowels, but in its written form, it doesn't have vowels. So imagine trying to say words with just consonants. Kids, you know what consonants are? Are you learning this stuff? Come on, are you learning stuff at school and at home? Yeah? So consonants are everything but the vowels. What are the vowels? Okay. All right, and sometimes. Why? Thank you. Okay, so as we work our way through these things, now imagine there was no A-E-I-O-U or sometimes Y, and it was just all consonants. Well, that's how the Hebrew language is, is written. And so as you actually think about what is the recorded version of God's special name, his chosen name for himself, it's just the consonants. You have Y-H-W-H. So this isn't the point of the lesson here tonight, kids. But God's personal name in Hebrew is Y-H-W-H, and there's no vowels in there. Well, now, imagine this. If you think it's sacrilegious to God to ever say his name out loud, and the only way that vowels are known is through oral tradition and through people saying them, but they're never written down, imagine what happens eventually is you don't know what the vowels are anymore because nobody's ever heard them said because it's taboo to even say them. And so eventually what you're left with is Y-H-W-H. And so then the question is, what, what are the vowels that we would fill that in when we translate it into an English equivalent? And so for a while they had filled in those vowels with the, the vowels that are found in God's other name, one of God's other names, Adonai. And so they took those vowels and plugged them into these consonants and they came up with Jehovah. And so when you hear the term Jehovah, which is how even this name of God, Jehovah Jireh, is known. Many of his names are known as Jehovah and then fill, some, fill in the blank. But most, I would say, the vast majority of modern Jewish or Christian scholars believe that it, would, it should have always pr more properly been pronounced Yahweh, not Jehovah. Now, does that mean it's wrong to still think of it as Jehovah? No. Uh, do some people still think it should be Jehovah? Yes. Does it matter that much? Not really, but God chose this name for himself, so it'd kind of be nice to know what he wanted to be known by, right? So we're kind of in that predicament, and that's how you end up with this. Again, that wasn't the point of this, but linguists, scholars, those who have looked at the Hebrew language, this has been a, a problem for them because they're not sure how to pronounce certain Hebrew words because the, cons the vowels are missing and the consonants are there. So we had this lesson here tonight as an aside, but that's what we're talking about. So really you're saying Yahweh has a name and then people 
characterize qualities about Yahweh, add it to the end of his name, and then you end up with various different descriptions of, God's that, of God that become known as these are alternate names for God. And so here's some examples. And it's based on descriptions of who God is or what he does added to the name he chose for himself. So if you're going by the older way of thinking about it, Jehovah, and then let's give a characteristic, okay? And we, you could make these up for yourself too. You could add any characteristic you know about God and you could say God is truth, God is light, God is love, God is righteous, God is holy. You could take any of his qualities, you could add them to his name and they would have called that another name for God. But that's neither here nor there. Here's some examples. So the Lord, now that's our English translation, either way you look, of it, look at it, our English translation for God's special name is, his personal name is the Lord. So now here's some example. The Lord is my helper. So they would translate that Jehovah or Yahweh Ezri. And I'm probably not saying any of these words right. E-Z-R-I. So Yahweh Ezri, the Lord is my helper. Another one is, the Lord is the mighty warrior, and that would be Yahweh Gibor or Jehovah Gibor. The Lord is our redeemer, then you would have either Yahweh Goel or Jehovah Goel. The Lord is the judge, and you'd have either Yahweh Hashopet or Jehovah Hashopet. The Lord saves, you'd have either Yahweh Hoshaya or Jehovah Hoshaya. And there's many, many more. So I, I don't expect you're going to remember any of those kids. That's not even the point. It's that you could literally take any attribute or quality of God, add it to his name, and you'd have an idea of what people are doing when they're referring to God as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord saves or the Lord will provide. And so as you think about the Lord will provide, that's how we got that we got that name. And it's one of the most famous examples of God's name combined with an aspect of God's character. Lots of people know about Jehovah Jireh because it's been something that's been repeated and said over and over. Now, because it's so famous in terms of all of those names for God, raise your hand if you're, if you're a kid and you had ever heard of, of Jehovah Ezri, Jehovah Gabor, Jehovah Goel, Jehovah Hashopet, Jehovah Hoshi, Hoshiah. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Jehovah Jireh before, though. Now, every single one of you who went to Bible camp has heard of that, right? Because that's what we talked about as our theme for camp. My point being, it's by far and away probably the most famous name like that where God's name Yahweh has a characteristic attitude. But then you'd say, if it's so famous, it must have been used a lot, right? It must have been in the Bible a lot, and that's why it's so well known. But interestingly, although it's so well known, that combination of God's name with God's quality or this character of God, characteristic of God that he provides, it's only used once in the whole Bible, only once. And Jireh, when we take that quality of God, that word means that Jehovah sees or Yahweh sees or Yahweh provides. And so you put them together and you have the Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh, God provides, the Lord provides. And so as you think about how that has, was only used one time. It was really interesting to me because you think about God providing and God provided to meet man's need only once too. When did, how did, when did God provide, ultimately make the provision or the sacrifice to deal with man's problem? How many times did God do that in terms of God's problem with the debt that was owed for sin? 
One time, right? It was a final sacrifice. Who did that involve? Come on, kids, think. Jesus. Jesus. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross as a payment for our sins, right? How many times did he have to die? Good. Thanks for raising your hands. We have some polite kids here too. Good. Um, One time he died. And after that, what? He was seated where? Okay, hand up here. In heaven at the where? You know specifically? Right hand of God, all right. We got it out there. Okay, so you're thinking about this. It's kind of interesting that one time it's mentioned that this is going to be a name describing God's characteristic of being the provider. And I think it's interesting that one time he provided ultimately for the man's biggest problem, to meet man's biggest need. Now this passage that we're going to look at, Genesis 22 here, it's another illustration of God needing to undertake to provide man for man's salvation, to provide to meet man's need. Now we've looked at several of them, right? We've looked at how he provided a way of rescue in Noah's day, and we looked at how he provided a a solution to deal with man's problem even as even in terms of Adam and Eve we we talked about or we looked at how he illustrated how he was going to have to provide an innocent to take the place of the guilty even with the idea of the type of sacrifice that he was looking for and the, the story of Cain and Abel we saw how God had to undertake to provide even as me, mankind found unity in their rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel and God had to intercede there he had to intervene so he could help man out because man was determined to try to come up with a solution apart from the solution that God himself alone could provide. So now we're going to see it here with Abraham. Turn to Genesis 22 if you haven't already. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Try to pick up the pace here a little bit. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, did this happen on Mount Moriah? We're going to get to this in a second. What does the text actually say? Go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice your son on one of the mountains that are in that region that I'll tell you about, and we'll get back to that in a second. Now, that's kind of the background. Now, how many, how many children did Abraham have with his, with his wife, Sarah? How many? Just one, right? And who is that? Isaac. So we have his name here, Isaac. This was a great... This is going to be a great test for Abraham because how, long, how old had Abraham been, just generally speaking, I don't even know the exact age, but he was more than how old when he had Isaac? You got a hand there? What, what's your answer? Yeah, he's more than 100 years old. His wife was more than 90 even when she got the news that they were going to have a child. I used to know the answer to like how long more was that, but in any event, uh, it's they're of advanced age. You talk about a parent being of advanced age today. I think they frankly, don't they say that about parents that are quite young? Um, and they labor, label it more of an at-risk pregnancy if you're even older than, what is it, 35 or something, right? Come on, we have some nurses in the room, right? Something like that. How about 95, <laughs> you know? 
So in any event, this is a test. God tested Abraham, it says. Now, how do we know it was a test? Because God said it was a test. Now, what is a test? If you're going to just think about it, we think we know, we, you know, we have words that we use a lot, but what is a test really? It's a procedure designed to ascertain the nature of something, including imperfections, faults, or other qualities. So a test is designed to bring out whether or not you've learned something or not when you think about it as you kids most often think about a test. But you test a plumbing fixture that you went through, you, you joined together too. You might test it by turning the water on. You test it to see, does it have any imperfections or faults? Is it working properly? And, and that's what a test is meant to do in terms of education too. A test is primarily de- determined to find out are there things that are missing? Are there faults or imperfections in this teaching that we've been doing where the student hasn't actually learned the things that we want them to learn? It's actually, in a sense, not as much about what you learned but what you didn't learn. That's what the teacher is trying to determine. Is did we meet our objective of teaching them these certain things or did we fail in that objective. And so as you think about personal tests, they expose what you're really made of. They reveal where you're really at. They reveal where your thinking is at as you think about tests in the form of trials and difficulties and hardships that you might face in life. They right away show you kind of where your thinking is. Especially when it comes to spiritual matters or spiritual thinking, it's going to show you right away the tests in your life. Am I trusting the Lord with all my heart? Am I depending on Him? Am I convinced and persuaded in this moment that God is able, that he's capable of dealing and helping and carrying me through this hard thing in front of me? Or maybe the test will reveal that we're not trusting him. And we go into a pit of despair, we start to wallow, we start to flounder. And what has the test shown us? Some very valuable information, right? It's shown us that we, we weren't where we thought we were or where God wanted us to be in terms of our trusting him. And that's what's meant here. This is a spiritual test for Abraham. And I can't, I can't even imagine a test like this. Because what is the test here in, the, in our example? The test is to take your only son that you waited 100 years of your life for and offer him as a sacrifice to God. We can't even wrap our minds around something like this. You see that God didn't even tell Abraham which mountain it was going to be. He just said, take him and go, and then I'll tell you, go in this general direction, and I'll tell you later where that's going to be. Does that sound familiar? How many of you know about the story of Abraham? Okay. When God called Abraham, we say that when God first kind of gave Abraham some instructions or some directions for his life, what did, did God tell Abraham where he was going to send him then? Did he? No, you all should be saying No. He said, go though, follow me, trust me, and go to a place that you do not know that I'm going to what? I'm going to show you, but you don't know it now. You see that, young people, old people, middle-aged people? God's trying to take us to a place that's better than where we are in terms of our spiritual growth, our spiritual well-being. He says, trust that the place I'm bringing you to is good. It's wonderful. It's going to represent a life that has value. It's going to be filled with my joy and my peace and my purpose. But I'm not going to show you, I'm not going to tell you even how we're going to get there or where that's going to be. 
but I want to bring you to that place. Would you just follow me? Now, is that easy to do? Thank you. All of you should be saying, no, it's not that easy to do. But that's what God wants us to do. So he doesn't even tell them that. Remember, a land I will show you. Now, I want, you to ask, I want to ask you this. These kind of tests, not in the literal sense. Literal means reality, like in an actual, this would actually happen kind of a sense. Is this the kind of test that God is asking us to do in an actual sense right now, in, in our day? No. Are, are, are there other examples of this other than God the Father sacrificing His only Son, Jesus Christ? Are there other examples of God asking other people to do this? No, this isn't, the takeaway isn't that we should um, try to duplicate or replicate this test that God had specifically for Abraham, but are these kinds of tests that involve us being willing to trust God with everything in our life and put nothing ahead of God in our life, trust Him more than everything, are those kind of tests kind of common? Really think about it. Is it kind of common? to face these kind of tests? You know, young people, some of you have been raised in this church or been raised in churches, so you, you know nothing about this. Some of you are third generation in, in terms of you've, you had a, a grandparent a, and, and a parent, maybe a great-grandparent, a grandparent, a parent, all of whom knew the Lord. They were saved. And so all you've ever known is growing up hearing about Jesus and his love. Maybe you've never had to face these kinds of tests. But some people in this room have these kinds of tests, not the exact same one. Jesus said that if you're going to be faithful to follow me, it's going to sometimes involve leaving your brothers and sisters behind. It's going to involve sometimes leaving parents behind. It's going to involve losing friendships and having people despise you having people persecute you, having people abuse you even in a sense of making fun of you, mocking you, treating you badly because you're now identified with the one that they hate, that they don't like, that they despise, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the more you're known for being connected to him, the more Jesus said that the world will hate you, not because they hate you, but because they hate him. And so if you're the kind of person who faithfully talks about Jesus a lot, you know what happens? Sometimes your family members don't want to be around you anymore. Sometimes they, they know that you're just going to remind them of this thing that they reject, this thing that they don't accept, and they're not going to want to spend time with you. And sometimes your own children will do that. It's not the exact same thing, but sometimes being faithful to God's word means that your own children would be sacrificed in the process that they would turn their back on you, that they wouldn't want anything to do with you, that they would distance themselves from you. Kids, can you, can you imagine that there's people here even today who have had to live through some of that? Where they haven't been able to talk to their brother, they haven't been able to fellowship with their parent or spend time with their parent, their child ignores them and avoids them because they associate them with being faithful to God and they don't want anything to do with it because as they're resisting God, it actually causes them anguish to be around somebody who's enjoying God so they want nothing to do with it. That can and does happen. And so this isn't as unrelatable as it seems at first glance. At first glance, this sounds crazy. Be willing to give up everything in order to trust me. 
That's really what God's saying the test is here. So let's keep going. What is Abraham's response? Well, it's a response of faith. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes. See, he had to travel for three days just to trust God here. And he saw the place afar off. And we're going to end right there for this part. So a response of faith. What did Abraham do? Abraham trusted God. How did that look? What does it look like to trust God? Simply doing what God asked him to do. Has God given you some instructions for your life, kids? Has, has he given you some guidance for your life? A little bit? How much? How, how, how long is it going to take you to, to understand it all? A long time, right? How, how much of this have you gotten through so far? This is God's guidebook here, kids. This is it right here. How, how much do we care to even know? We got to want it pretty bad, don't we? We got to want it pretty bad if we're even going to spend any time learning it, studying it, reading it meditating about it, fellowshipping around it, talking about it, hearing it taught by other people coming out to church on a night like this, right? So God has given us lots of guidance, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He's not trying to make your life miserable by giving you some guidance, kids. Lots of people are trying to give you guidance about your life could be so good if you would just do this or that or the other thing. And God's saying, your life can be great if you'll just take my advice, listen to my instructions. When you listen to the instructions of a parent, what is that called? Obedience. Is obedience a dirty word? Kind of, we hate that word, don't we? Obedience isn't a dirty word. It's, it's somebody who loves us in most instances. Sometimes it's just an authority person who maybe doesn't care about us one way or the other, but they're telling us something we must do. But in the context of God's book, it's a heavenly father who loves us desperately that's giving us some guidance and he's saying, it's in your best interest to obey. Not because you understand, but because you trust that I am on your side, that I love you, and that I know so much more than you do, and I can guide you in a way that will be beneficial to you. And so how does Abraham respond? He just simply does what God asks him to do. And faith involves responding to God regardless of human understanding, regardless of whether you have a lot of insight about what God is, where God is leading or why he's doing what he's doing. And I would say this, what isn't recorded here is far more fascinating than what is recorded here. What is recorded is Abraham did what God said, period. What isn't here is Abraham didn't ask, why are we doing this, God? Abraham didn't make excuses, try to delay, try to come up with some alternative, try to figure things out, try to wait a while, try to ignore it, try to pretend God hadn't said anything. You kids ever do any of that stuff? Just act like you never even heard your dad? Why are you all smiling right now? Just pretend you don't even, I didn't hear that. Oh, I didn't even know that you said that, Mom. Yeah, remember when I told you to pick up your room? Oh, I didn't hear that. Hmm. I said it pretty loudly. That was the 17th time I said it today. Abraham doesn't do any of that. 
And God's, God never said you need to understand what he's doing. Write that down. Write that in your mind. God never said you need to understand what he's doing or why he does it. You just need to learn to trust him. Whew. It's easier said than done. God never promised that you would understand. He never said you deserve to understand. He never said you would understand. He just said, trust me enough to follow me and listen to what I have to say. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. God never promised we would see where his path is leading or we would know in advance where he's taking us. He just said, follow me. That's really freeing in some ways, kids. It's really freeing to just say, I don't have to lead my own life. I can follow God. Well, now we're going to see confidence in God keeping his promises. Abraham has this confidence that God will keep his promises. Let's read 5 through 10. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, meaning that he carried it. And he took the fire. Now, who else carried some wood? to a sacrifice that was waiting for him. Who else carried a big chunk of wood? Jesus did, right? He carried his own cross to a place of sacrifice where he was going to be sacrificed. We'll touch on that in a minute more. Oh, I got sidetracked. Where was I here? All right, the lad, he laid it on his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Did Isaac know about burnt offerings? Yeah. God had said, do this as a way of a temporary covering for your sin as a symbolic way of showing that an innocent is going to have to take the place of the guilty and you're the one who's guilty. So as you shed that innocent lamb's blood, know that it was you who caused that to happen. It wasn't somebody else's sins that caused that to happen. It was your sins that caused an innocent to have to die in the place of the guilty. So in any event, he knows about these things. And Abraham said, my son, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them and Abraham, had, Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar among, upon the wood. Now just so you know, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now this is a pretty scary thing, I understand that. Um, but we're going to see it has a happy ending. But also remember this, Abraham is probably approximately 116, 117 years old. Isaac is about 17 years old. Isaac willingly went along with this. There's no 117-year-old who's going to be able to manhandle a 17-year-old and tie him up and get him to do this unless that 17-year-old is willing. Now, it is true that if your lifespan was a lot longer then, uh, maybe... Uh, 100 years old is the equivalent of being 33 years old now. Maybe that's the case, but that's not what we see here. We see this picture of this willingness on Isaac's part to just trust his father and go along with this. But the, where we left off is Abraham's about to do this. God said, go sacrifice your son. He was willing to do that. And you think about that. He must have had a lot of confidence in God. You think about confidence as an alternate word for faith. Faith is to be confident in God or to have confidence in God. He must have been very confident that God would keep his promises. And you think about that song, faith is just believing what God says he will do. He will never 
fail us, his promises are true. Okay, so it keeps, it goes on from there. But it's faith is believing that what God says he will do. Now, what had God said to Abraham? See, Abraham's faith or believing God was first demonstrated by doing what God asked. But now we see his faith is also observed by his conviction that Isaac would survive this test. See, Abraham wasn't worried to do what God said because he knew that God always kept his promises. And what had God promised Abraham? He said to, in Genesis 17, for sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase, God had said to him, Sarah is going to bear a son. You're going to call his name Isaac. I'm going to establish my covenant with him, with Isaac. It's going to be an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Isaac didn't even have any kids yet. God had promised that he would establish a covenant with Isaac and with Isaac's descendants, his future children. That hadn't even happened yet. So, so Abraham could take God's word to the bank. He could trust God knowing that when he said... Um, my covenant I will establish with Isaac and Isaac is going to be born and Isaac is going to have all of these descendants. He knew that God would have to figure out a way to keep his word because God always keeps his word. God never lies. Imagine that Abraham must have been convinced of that and had confidence in that if he was willing to follow through with even sacrificing his own son. Now, note the confidence and strength of conviction in God's provision in Abraham's language. He says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Notice that he says, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. That's what he said in verse 5 to his servants. Abraham is absolutely convinced that God has a way in mind where Isaac is going to come back with him regardless of God testing him and asking him to do this. He trusted God. He trusted him before he even got to the point of being willing to lift his arm up with a knife in it to sacrifice Isaac. You see that? Uh, we will come back to verse 5. God will provide himself the lamb for burnt offering. He wasn't talking about Isaac. He knew that God would provide an alternative. And see, God will provide the sacrifice that is needed because only God can save. You say, how could Abraham possibly follow through with this? How could Abraham possibly sacrifice his own son? What loving father could ever do this? A father who trusted God and took God at his word. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19a, it says this about Abraham's thinking. Now who inspired and breathed every word of scripture? God. Every word. So when the New Testament talks about what Old Testament people were thinking, did God know what they were thinking? Yes. yes. So when we read about it in the New Testament, instead of the Old Testament, can we add it back to the story knowing this is exactly what Abraham was thinking? Yes, because who said so? God, and does God ever make mistakes? God never makes mistakes. So what was Abraham thinking? It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, Abraham concluded or he was concluding that God was able to raise him up, who is he talking about, Isaac, even from the dead. Abraham was rationalizing his willingness to trust God by one, believing that they would both come back, two, believing that God would provide an alternative lamb, three, knowing that if he didn't, God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham knew that while he was going through this trial. Pretty amazing. 
How could Abraham be so sure? Because God made a promise and God always keeps his promises. Are you so sure? Are you sure that God will keep his promises in your life? Tell me one promise God made to you. Raise your hand. First one up. Tell me one promise God has made to you. You got a hand up here? Do you know one? No? Margretta? Okay. I will never leave you or forsake you. Is that a promise from God? Yes. Does God keep his promises? Yes. Do you believe it? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Are you convinced? Yes. Is that true even when you're, you fall into a hole and you're stuck by yourself in the dark? Huh? Is that true when you're on a timeout in your room by yourself? Huh? Is that true when your parents forget you at church? Do we really believe it? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Do you believe God? That's the question. Now the Lord provides a way of salvation. We all know that this has a happy ending, so let's read it. Then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now. I know that you fear God. What he really means is fear God above all else, that you put him in a place of preeminence. Since you have not withheld anything, your most precious thing, which is his son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In the place where God is, God is always going to provide. So, the Lord will provide. Now, the emphasis here, it's really two parts. God will provide, and Abraham trusted God to provide. There's two parts to this story here. God will provide, did he? Yes. Abraham trusted God, though, to provide. That's the second part. Now think about it in the greater context of God providing a substitute to deal with all of mankind's sinfulness. That provision of a substitute came at a great expense. The Heavenly Father had to be willing to sacrifice His Son, Jesus Christ. Was Abraham willing to do it? Yeah. Because he counted that God would raise him from the dead. The father knew he would raise Jesus from the dead too. But he had to be willing to sacrifice his son for you and I because he loved us so much. But what's only part of it is that God made a way. Did God make a way for all of us to be saved? Yes, but does he make us trust him to, to put our confidence in that? The answer is no, but Abraham did. There was two parts to that. So there was no substitute then not when it came to the time of the father offering his son. There wasn't any other ram caught in the thicket. The sinless, spotless lamb of God did die. He was sacrificed for you and I. There was, Jesus ended up paying a debt that you and I could never pay because he loved us so much. So you think about only God can save or how God alone saves. You see that here. Is God provided an alternative, a substitute in the place of Isaac, just like he provided an alternative and a substitute sacrifice in the place of you and I? That was Jesus Christ. So the question isn't, will God provide? He has provided. The question is, will we trust him? 
Will you trust him? All right, let's pray. Dear, pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for this time in Genesis chapter 22. Pray that we could be reminded that you're a God worth trusting because you're a faithful, loyal God who has never failed, always keeps his promises. Pray that we would see that. We would taste and see that you're good, that you're on our side, that we would just obey you in faith, not because we have to, but because it's in our best interest to obey a father who loves us and knows more than we know and has our best interests at heart. Pray that we could see that, that in taking you by faith, we'll actually have access to a life that would be far greater or far better than anything we could conjure up on our own. Thank you for this food that you've provided here for our our dinner here tonight. Thank you for all the people that worked hard to make it possible. Pray that we would enjoy that time together and that there would be safety for everybody involved. Pray again for those who are facing medical needs. Again, Dave, just undertake with all those details. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, young people, remember kind of our rules for these nights. We're not bringing our food in here. We're eating and drinking anything that we're eating and drinking either.